Hey guys, this is the Hacker Noon podcast, and today we have a special guest with us. Her name is Monica Quaintance. She has been heading the research and networks division at this blockchain company called Cardina. Uh, she is also a former senior data engineer at Rent the Runway. She has been a former quantitative analytics engineer at the Securities and Exchange Commission of the U.S. She also has experience in securitization and restructuring of commercial real estate assets in the investment banking group. And uh, she has a double BA degrees in statistics and probability, as well as one from economics from the Columbia University. And uh, she is championing the cause of pro-diversity as a co-founder at Universal Consensus. Along with her, I also have Lisa Tan, who will be joining me as a co-host. She is the founder and lead economist at Economics Design, which is a research-focused consultancy for digital ecosystems. She also has a weekly podcast on the economics of token ecosystems, online courses, and has educated regulators and companies across the world. Thank you both of you for being here. Hello. So Monica, tell us. Uh, Hello. Yeah. Hey, Lisa. So tell us a little bit about about yourself, Monica. Like, how did you get started in the at the SEC? Like, how do how does somebody apply for your job? Um, interesting. Um, at the SEC. The way that I, the way that at least I ended up with the job is Will and I knew each other from college. We were college friends, and Will was working in this totally random, tiny little group inside of the New York City SEC branch. That mm-hmm. basically what they do is develop highly specialized software to try to combat various forms of trading fraud. Mm-hmm. So somebody has to, when they subpoena the trade blotter for an organization, a bank, somebody has to actually take that trade blotter and then process it, process the data, looking for any number of different types of trading that's illegal, like wash trading, where you wash in one account to another account in your same organization in order to make it look like the price is changing. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway all kinds of different ways to commit trading fraud and somebody has to make the software so that the SEC can try and catch it. Mm -hmm. So Will called me up and said, hey, we have an opening in our group for somebody who likes programming system stuff and understands economics and has a background in banking. I was like, well, okay, great, (laughs) let's do it. So uh, I remember that those were some of the most grueling but also interesting interviews I've ever done just Uh like totally spanned the gamut of talking about like probability theory in bridge the card game to Mm -hmm. you know how does python store different variables under the hood and how does the memory management system work and how does it interact with the c compiler and just like basically everything (laughs) and it was awesome but unfortunately when i got there they then went through a restructuring of the group so both will and i left like three four months after i started 
Mm -hmm. It was a totally wild ride, but got to see some really interesting things. And there are a lot of really brilliant people working for that group. It's cool. Definitely. Yeah. And like, were there any like psychometric questions as well? Like we had John, John McAfee with us that other day and he was like, he worked for the NSA and they had all of those weird questions for them. Like, did you cheat on your wife? Did you, <laughs> did you gamble? Did you like steal from somebody? And he answered yes to all of those questions and they gave him the job. They was like, they were like, this guy is not afraid of anybody. Amazing. So we would like give them the job. How about you? Like, what was your questions like on that kind um, of things? They were to like a totally normal, although albeit an extensive background check. Mm -hmm. And they're like, have you ever lived in a country, blah, 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 where you might have been radicalized by like some faction of something? Wow. Um, <laughs> ever, like, where are all the places you lived? Where are all the places you've ever traveled within the last like 10 years? So I had to like get out my calendar and be like, okay, five years ago in May, where did I go on vacation? Like, but, but besides just being an extensive background check, there's really nothing. There's really nothing that exciting. Uh -huh. Got it. And how did you like get introduced to the blockchain side of things and how did you end up becoming the head of networks and research at yeah. a blockchain company, Cadena? So this is Will's fault again. You know, okay. you're, you're sensing a theme of us dragging each other into trouble. Thank you, Will. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Will, um, when I left the SEC, I went to rent the runway and eventually rebuilt their back-end data storage system for where wow. they keep information. And you, people don't think about it, but Rent the Runway, which for those of you who don't know, because you are not a woman who lives in a high-density metropolitan area, uh, rents clothing to women. And it's high-end clothing. It's, mm -hmm. you know, your nice blouses and jackets and interesting purses and statement pieces. And so that you pay a monthly subscription and then you can have as many swaps of stuff as you want. Mm -hmm. And so they are North America's largest dry cleaning facility mm -hmm. and uh, an incredible logistics business that tracks all of this data for all of these items of clothing. And mm -hmm. they have warehouses where everything is moved on these racks and like shuttling around automatically. It's so crazy. It's super cool. Mm -hmm. Anyway, after I left the SEC, I went to go do data there. And then mm -hmm. Will went to JP Morgan to the research institute where they have a group inside JP Morgan that basically vets technology for people that are trying to sell to JP Morgan. You know, they're like, use mm -hmm. our software. And JP Morgan's like, go look at their software, figure out what it does. So the research group in exchange for doing some vetting also gets to work on experimental software projects. Mm -hmm. So they had a lot of people coming to JP Morgan saying like, hey, use our blockchain. JP Morgan was like, what's a blockchain? <laughs> so Stuart and Will started researching all these different blockchain solutions for the bank. Like, hey, everybody's talking about this Ethereum thing. Like, should we use this at the bank? Like, should we, people are clamoring that this is like the future of currency. Like, we should know what the future of currency is. Yeah. <laughs> they looked at Ethereum and they were like, programmable money. Like, mm -hmm. these contracts aren't safe. The network doesn't scale. Like nobody can understand solidity. It's confusing and full of safety holes. Like it, it's, it's terrifying to send your money 
on a blockchain. Even for people who've been doing it for years, every mm -hmm. time I check the SIG like 16 times. And then when I push the button, I'm like praying, like, please don't let me have messed this up because there's no, there's no insurance. It's irreversible. You don't know who you're sending to. Like there's no verifiable identity on your counterparty. So we're like, <laughs> Will's like, we can do better. We can do better. <laughs> so Will and Stu left the bank uh -huh. and Will called me and he's like, here's the deal. We're making a public blockchain. We're making a cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. Do you want to come? We need somebody mm -hmm. who understands the movement of distributed data systems, economics, and can talk to non-engineering people about engineering things. I was like, okay. I've never made How a blockchain How many people before, in the world can do that? <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe just me. I mean, there's some other extremely brilliant people out there at blockchain projects, like, you know, Zucky Manian at Cosmos and Goon at Avalanche and Alex Gidanov at Near. They're like just super brilliant. I feel really privileged, honestly, that I get to interact with them and like sit down with them at the table kind of as peers, although, you know, they're all way more successful than at least in terms of size of the market of all their projects right now. But I think we can hold our own. I think we're going to make it. I think we're, we're still like the little blockchain project that could in some ways, even though we have hit a bunch of major milestones. And it's a it's a heady feeling to know that those people consider us to be to be peers. It's good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's always good to like have more competition in this space. Like, yes, Ethereum had their early success and people forget that they had their DAO hacks over there as well, which led to the splitting of the entire like Ethereum blockchain. Yeah, I like, mean, there we've all had growing pains and we all struggle. And in some ways, like the public spotlight in which people start talking about your flaws is just as important to the growth project growth of a project as people talking about your successes because people only care enough to criticize you if you're potentially worth something like mm -hmm. you don't become a target until yeah. <laughs> people actually care right. so the fact that you know people are starting to come around and like try and poke holes in what we're working on and try and you know tell people oh you know those people blah 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 that it does it they say that it works like this but it doesn't really works like this like that just means to me that we're succeeding in what we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. And what we're, we're trying to do is give people an actual programmable blockchain that they mm -hmm. feel safe using, that they feel comfortable using. Mm -hmm. That's right. And I guess like Lisa has been in this like blockchain world for a long time. And both of us have like seen uh, companies who were promote themselves as the unhackable blockchain, the blockchain that cannot be hacked. And the general consensus among technologists is that if you give anything enough computing power, it can be hacked. Like, it's just a function of time and resources. I mean, the whole idea of unhackable just in general is is counter to the way that systems work. Because yeah. any system that's made for people to use and access means that it potentially has vulnerabilities because I mean you can make a system that runs by itself forever that nobody can access great 
like who cares mm -hmm. or you can make something that people can actually try and use but that'll always leave you open to some kind of vulnerability whether it's trying to exploit the mechanisms of participation for us it's mining for other projects it's staking and mm -hmm. always going to be tried people that try to socially manipulate the people on the platform like this just goes back to the idea of like you know people only try to hack your blockchain when it's worth mm -hmm. something mm -hmm. so like your blockchain exists because people want to use it people want to use it people are going to try to hack it so right. and and all you can do is in in my mind from a usability perspective give the users as many tools as possible in order to try to let them control their experience rather than making mm -hmm. design choices like kind of like ethereum did where they're like okay i'm not sure whether this is a conscious choice or not but they're like code is law that means that right. when you release a smart contract what you get in the wild is what you submitted but people make mistakes people make mistakes all the time right. which leaves you open to security vulnerabilities and so we'd rather give people tools to actually be able to swim in an environment where there is a lot of uncertainty Mm -hmm. You can make built-in escrow contracts. You can have built-in multi-sig transactions that require multiple people to sign a transaction. Like all mm -hmm. of that, totally native to the platform and built into our idea of what safety and security looks like. Mm -hmm. I just like, sorry, I just <laughs> went off on that one. I got inspired. <laughs> <laughs> it's always like nice to hear people who know stuff talking. So no, like no questions <laughs> okay. there. It's Good. always like cool. nice to have people like that. Yeah. Well, I feel and, like I've lived the last yeah. 20 years doing blockchain, although it's only been three. So mm -hmm. we can have a nice, nice, as deep as you want to go. As deep as you want to go. Perfect. So at this like uh, moment, I'd like to let Lisa take over and uh, discuss like uh, how, like how is your solution different from ethereum from a tokenomics perspectives from an economics perspective how do you incentivize users how different is it from the hundreds of others that we have seen and i guess like lisa has more experience on these so yeah. i will like let her take the floor yeah so monica do you want to start introducing what what um what cardena is about and how tokens yeah. are being used and talk a little bit more about cardena yeah, let's do it. All right, so Cadena's purpose, when you go back to remember the genesis of the company and the blockchain, that what the original purpose of this was, we want something that's straightforward and safe and simple, that actually provides the kind of services that Ethereum said it was going to provide. You know, truly be Web 3.0, programmable money, but also be as safe as possible. And so when we think about the structure of a blockchain and how we fundamentally wanted it to work, we wanted something that was essentially Bitcoin with scaling and smart contracts on top. So we didn't want to variate to, to change too much from what we consider to be a system that actually works, which is proof of work. The problem, at least in my mind, that most people have with proof of work is it doesn't scale. If you could have Nakamoto consensus and you could push through as many transactions as you wanted, if it scaled infinitely, nobody would making all these complaints about proof of work like, oh, you know, 
it's not environmentally conscious or like, low. you know, you have to invest in a bunch of hardware. The great thing about investing in hardware is that anybody can go out and buy a mining rig. Not anybody can go back to, can go back in time, like make sure that you were among the, one of the first people to ever, you know, bake a block of Tezos. Like that's just not possible. So we think proof of work in Nakamoto consensus just works. Like it's math. Are you the first person to solve the math puzzle? Great you can participate in this network. And we think that that is, I think, it's incredible that we went through a world in which essentially you have to know who your counterparties are in some kind of trusted setup to anybody, literally anywhere in the world, grandma in Krakow with a computer in her closet could theoretically mine a block of Bitcoin. Like anybody, anywhere in the world. And so we took proof of work and we went, okay, if you have one Bitcoin, you can have one block. What if you had mm -hmm. two Bitcoin? You could have two blocks. And then this idea of, okay, but if you have two separate blockchains, how can they communicate with each other? So the way ChainWeb works, that's our, our consensus protocol, is we one block, if you only have two chains, contains not only its own proof, but the proof from its sister chain. So then you have two proofs embedded in one block, which keeps the network in sync with each other. Because if the next block on, let's call them chain one and chain two, the next block on chain one contains a proof in chain two, and then the node then tries to mine a block in chain two, they're like, wait a minute, this proof doesn't match the one that's in chain one. That doesn't make any sense and it will discard it. So that's how we do fork management. But the great thing about chain web is the more chains you add, it doesn't necessarily scale linearly in terms of the number of connections you have to add. So we are on a 10 chain graph right now, which requires uh, three connections to other blocks at the same time. So your own proof and then two other proofs. But soon we are moving to 20 chains. That's actually our major software lift right now is migrating the network from 10 chains to 20 chains, which requires a dynamic difficulty adjustment function so that each chain knows exactly how hard it should be to mine the block given the distribution of power in the network. It's like totally crazy stuff. <laughs> the formulas are really cool. Um, and so more blocks means more transactions means bigger, more scalable network without an increase in fees. And so we figured out how to scale proof of work. So we decided not to abandon proof of work. Like proof of work is cool. We can just mine more blocks. So that's the mechanism for how the system works. And then on top of that, we have a smart contract layer that functions. We, we like to say that it is like a, an upgraded version of what smart contracts could be because everything, even the, the coin contract for the network itself is a smart contract. And then those smart contracts, because we, uh, because of the choices we made in the language design, you can actually formally verify every contract that every user writes. It's built into our wallet, actually. You can just like load our wallet up on your computer, type in your contract and put parameters around it. And then it will check whether those parameters are true. So that's cool. Um, Okay, so the net design of the network is we're proof of work. Stock, totally stock proof of work. It just, you can get paid on 10 chains at a time rather than one chain at a time. Mm -hmm. And so we run with mining, like Bitcoin style, classic Ethereum style mining. And miners get compensated for the transactions that they process and they get compensated for mining new blocks by getting rewarded with new tokens. 
it's not that it's not that complicated it's not that excited that sounds amazing so before we go deeper into understanding a lot more details i think you've covered a lot of details and if i could summarize how how cardano works it's like a tree with a lot of different branches and so the main tree trunk is summarizing all the different transactions that's going on in each branch and the branches not, can just not kind of branch, a branch and so that to me is a little too hub and spoke the idea that there's this like yes. central trunk with leaves off of it mm -hmm. it's more like there are five trees all growing in an orchard mm -hmm. and their branches like cross each other as they are growing each tr each tree is independent of each other they each have their own ledger they each have their own system of accounts and each blockchain could progress on its own without the others around it and then they just like send out little bursts of information to each other actually it's the way that actual tree networks do by entangling yeah. their roots but <laughs> it's not going yeah. pollination right right yeah so um it's more like you have five independent trees all growing at the same time right now we have 10 trees we seem to have 20 trees we just extend the metaphor to the whole forest <laughs> so um, whatever transaction is going on my tree can also be interacting with whatever transaction that's going on your tree even we are two different trees from two different right. places so the way we do that is with a cross-chain transaction a cross-chain transaction so if i do a, a transaction within the same tree you can just do it in a single action, which is, you know, I send something. When I would be sending to another chain, the way we do it is I say, okay, these tokens are going to go exist on chain three now. Please send them over there. And what happens is out into the network, a block with that proof in it that says chain, coins from chain zero can only be redeemed on chain two. And then you on chain two see this proof come in. The coins have been burned on my chain, so they're gone. The actual total number of tokens on chain zero briefly drops. And then the total number of tokens on chain two, you get that receipt, you consume the receipt, and from it, you rebirth these tokens onto your own chain. So the, the number of tokens on each chain doesn't actually need to remain constant. It's a totally free-flowing system, and it's a simple payment verification to go from chain zero to chain two. And if at any point during method, the middle, right? your transaction gets like something happens, like you get the block that you were in gets dropped and you know, you end up with another fork. If you're before the transaction ever happened, you don't care. If you're in the middle, the receipt hasn't been consumed yet. So it's still out there floating. And then if you're at the, the back end, like you've completed your transaction, you don't care. So in the, in the middle of the time before, once the token is being being out there to be to be approved for transaction, and before the other person actually approves it, that that ownership or the property, the rights of this token is still belonging to whoever that holds the receipt of the original token. Yes. Oh, that so will really can... reduce the stress that you're talking about just now when you're checking and you don't know when your tokens are being verified. Yeah. 
that's we the whole system is designed on trying to be as foolproof as possible and like trust me it doesn't mean that you still can't mess up doing transactions like in the very beginning when we were like running on test net and we were firing transactions around to each other like i would screw things up all the time like i would put the wrong key guard when i was making a new account so then i wouldn't be able to actually do anything with it because i didn't have permissions for my account or i'd you know give them keys any access instead of keys all access on my access permissions then i'd be able to get into my account but i wouldn't be able to like mess around with it like it's just like i've done it all i've made all the mistakes but you know this is how we build a strong system is you mess it up enough times for like okay we really think that we've messed it up in so many <laughs> ways and then you pay people to come in and try and mess it up even more and they're like no we can't mess it up either so it's a uh, we're reasonably confident now that we've given people the tools to to be able to protect themselves. Sounds sounds really great. That's how that's how you build a strong system. You have to break it down and make sure that it cannot be break down any further. Uh, yes. <laughs> you mentioned that you're going to use tokens as a way to incentivize miners to be approving all these transactions because you're using proof of work for a new tree to be grown. So for a new network to be to be part of the whole entire ecosystem. Do they have to, is, is that token related to a new tree being, being planted? Got it, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. So the structure of the network is fixed. Like it, it doesn't change. It's, these are the five chains. These are how they talk to each other. It's defined in the network parameters that were created when we originally had network genesis. So it's not like a system in which you can like spin up a new validator that can talk to the other validators like there's no user involvement at all in the structure of the network. It's when you sign on, you see messages coming into your queue as a miner into the mempool that have as many different feeds as you want to describe, uh, subscribe to chains zero through nine. And so if you're subscribing to the chain zero message feed, you get transactions from there, you can bundle them into a block and you can mine that block. And you can subscribe to as many feeds as you want, zero to nine. And so that the network itself is fixed in terms of its structure and the blocks you can see is a miner. That's why our upgrade from a 10 chain to a 20 chain network is going to be such an awesome achievement when we do it at the end of the summer, because this is us proving that we can migrate a network from a smaller size to a larger size, which means that in the future we can continue to fork out the network to larger configurations. It's important that the network structure is fixed because it means that this word we're, we're gonna like dip into a little graph theory here, that when you have your graph, that a fully connected graph would be where every node talks to every other node. That's too many messages. That scales like the n over n minus two, like you know, it, it scales extremely quickly. Um, nodes connected to all the other nodes. And so when we had the idea for ChainWeb, it's really important to be able to have full propagation of information with the minimum amount of connectedness, but also the minimum diameter. Diameter being the number of hops you have to take for you to be able to talk to any other chain. So like, if I only want us to have if we're a 10 chain, we don't want each node to talk to each other node, but instead I could send a message as chain zero to you as chain one and you could forward it on to you know, your, your friend on chain three. And that message propagation allows us to have a reduced number of messages on the network, which means it's not totally crazy to have all these things talking to each other. <laughs> 
by that, that logic, good. it's also possible to have one of the chains to be completely private, where my connections and my messages will not be able to talk to another? Can't have that happen because the only way that blocks get made on the network is if each chain, so if you're in chain zero and you require proofs from chain zero, one, and two, then if you're not getting blocks from two for some reason, like, you know, somebody's attempted to, to buy up all the hash power on chain two, then you just hop over and you start mining chain two. Like if you saw that the Bitcoin network was slow and that blocks weren't getting produced, you're like, whoo, cheapest block I've ever mined. <laughs> like, I'm going to go hop over there. So this idea that you can censor one of the chains in chain web just isn't possible because if you see a chain that isn't producing blocks, you're like, cheap, I'm going to make it myself. Mm. And you mentioned that for each block to be validated, they need three other chains information to be validating a block. Uh, so I don't try not to use the word validating okay. because it, it tends to get people confused and think about we're talking about a staking system because we're not a staking mm -hmm. system. It's you have to proof check proofs from your sister chains before you can mine the block. Like similar to the way that when you get a block in Bitcoin and people are like, hey, this is the new leader block and you grab it. The first thing you do is you validate the hash to make sure that it's true. And then on top of that, you then start building your next block. You just perform that first step, make sure that this is true with two other proofs as well from sister blocks because you're you're maintaining the history for not only your own chain but also two other chains it sort of mixes this idea of sharding in terms of you know that you're covering more than just your own share of the transaction pool in order to have some overlap this gesture looks really funny on camera <laughs> <laughs> um, but rather than it being from a validation standpoint, you're actually just checking the, the hashes of blocks on other chains. And then you include them in your next block and then you then proceed to the next one. And this means that sort of like a, like a three-legged race, you're tying the blockchains to each other so they can't ever get further ahead because they have to wait for their sister chains proof to, so you can't have like network lag or and like if one chain is just for some reason not producing blocks, the whole network will actually have to slow down to catch up, but miners should be hopping over, actually our mining software does this automatically, reallocates hash power to whatever chain is the slowest because that's the most potentially economically beneficial for miners. So your system automatically allocates the distribution of power so that everything will be, will be mined at the same rate? Well, it's not like it doesn't, it's not like some kind of malicious automatic yeah. reallocation and miners could build their own mining software to allocate however they want. Like maybe they only want to mine chain zero for some reason and then they'll have to listen to a message queue from a pool in order to get validation on that the information that they're receiving from other on their blocks are correct because they're not validating those other chains themselves, like totally an option. But our software does switching because it's trying to make the miner the most money. And so whatever chain is this, like we can imagine it like some kind of membrane where it's a pool of hash power. And if any chain is like lower than the others, it like pulls on the membrane and like pools the hash power down onto whichever chain is the lowest until it evens back out again. 
sounds like time travel to me. Sounds like time travel to me. It's basically time travel. Yeah. Like I ha- like I have been like listening to you guys for the past five minutes. I'm like, yeah. Something gets created at this end while simultaneously while simultaneously like getting destroyed at the other end. I I read that in some sci-fi novel. Yep. <laughs> Very nice to hear that. Like I can make my own analogies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's like um the prestige. The Jonathan exactly like prestige. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Where where he's well, spoilers. Spoiler alert for the prestige. If anybody hasn't seen it, if one of the magicians appears to be teleporting, but really he's yeah. just copying himself and then murdering his old body every time. <laughs> but that's not the order that we do it in. because that wouldn't be safe for simple payment verification it would result in in double token and mm-hmm. you would have to trust that the first party would actually kill themselves we actually do we kill them first and then we resuscitate them <laughs> we kill them I got first dark fast <laughs> yeah sorry it's actually very it's actually very helpful that both of you can speak to the rest of the world i mean people like me who don't understand these terms cause you guys need to break it down and analogies are the best ways to do that we could all talk about byzantine fault tolerance tokenomics and the stuff that you guys have been talking right it would never register to the common people unless you guys can break it down so like thank you guys like both of you for these wonderful analogies like Okay, we had to bring up Presty, then Hugh Jackman had to die, but it's all right. <laughs> right. Um, I got I got called out for my analogies on a podcast a couple of weeks ago. I was we were talking about Oracle integration because we just uh-huh. we have a partnership with Chainlink, and we are our goal is to bring in data sources to our blockchain so that when people right. program smart contracts, they can get like, oh, a spot price feed for Ethereum. Like, let me know how much Ethereum is automatically whenever I'm instantiating this contract. And mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, it's like you're you're sitting in a dark room and your brain has no stimuli, but then you like you turn on the lights and you turn on the radio and suddenly you're receiving information and people are like, so Monica thinks like Kadena's like a brain and Chainlink are like <laughs> 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 right yeah it's like a brain <laughs> you mentioned that codes law it's not something it's not really a philosophy that you guys bring aboard bring on board so what would be your governance mechanism because the thing about another thing about oracles and having information from all these decentralized sources is that what if they're manipulated and how do we know which is the most definite answer to how the the smart contract should integrate the information so as to approve or to prove the check there there're multiple you touch on multiple different things in your questions so i'm going to break them out into pieces one of them is this idea of code is law which is that when you ship your smart contract it's immutable and then you also brought up a separate issue which is how do you determine whether the oracle you're using is trustworthy i think those are actually take two questions okay and so the the first one like I guess if our motto isn't code is law it's you know developers make mistakes <laughs> people are human and uh, we think that or or maybe it's that that code is change because when you think about software like you're literally always updating everything all the time 
code that is static is code that dies. It's code that no longer works and performs the function as intended because we as humans are mutable and our desires and business decisions and the things we need and our goals like are always changing and code should serve that. Code should be an extension of your will, not something that manifests the will that you had six months ago when, you know, the API that you were hitting was giving you this and what you really wanted to do was this. Like what you should do is like we're every time as developers, what we're doing is we're building a castle out of sand on the beach. And meanwhile, like the wind is blowing and the waves are coming in and it's like scooping out the bottom of your sand castle every time they're like, we're going to update the Haskell compiler. And we're like, no, don't do it. And like, oh, you have to update your operating system. Like, like it's just constantly trying to like shovel new sand down into the hole. So the idea that when you deploy a contract, you shouldn't be able to change it is like well that's totally useless that's you can never even your business decisions change and smart right. contracts code looks it's it's not code like system code it's code that should reflect what you're trying to do and why it is business logic codified and given to a machine and told to execute so the whole idea behind packed our smart contract language is and the way that our system works in general we have this like radical idea of you should be able to name your accounts different than the public key on the accounts so you can like change the name if you want which was like a totally radical thing that ethereum didn't do and you should be able to name your smart contracts and then if you don't want to use that one anymore, you can just change the reference to a new name. So you'd be like contract A, you're like contract A version two, so that you can actually change what's going on. So you can see the previous version of the contract. It's always going to exist on the blockchain, but mm -hmm. you just might not want to use it anymore. And that's just like, oh my God, you can rename something like <laughs> totally, totally mind blown. But it's, so that's our whole idea about code is law is that you know, code that is co code is law. It just means code is dead. It's not going to happen. So Agreed. that's the first idea. Do you, no. do you have thoughts on that? Like I personally, like I am not a programmer, but I work with a lot of programmers and none of them say that code is law because the literal definition of code is law is code is God and code is not God. You need to have room for evolution everywhere. Right, there has to be a mechanism by which something can be evolved. We have all had constitutions, like Singapore has a constitution, the US has one, India has one, but we keep on amending it, right? So similarly, like there has to be a, a mechanism the way that I see it in the programming world as well. I had a few questions about your programming language Pact. Sure. Uh, yeah, so I read somewhere that it has the same like encryption mechanisms like which is uh, symmetric encryption similar to signal and whatsapp and again like i don't know much but i what i like read somewhere that signal uh, security and whatsapp security is not as good as it should be so have you guys like improved upon it in certain ways or like how do you like guys take care of security and encryption within your services and within your uh, programming language. Mm -hmm. So we use the same 
signature model that pretty much everybody, I think, who knows what they're doing on signatures is ED25519, which is just a, a particular elliptic curve that you can use to sign your transactions. Right. And I, I think that it's really important to not mess around <laughs> with cryptographic algorithms. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not a cryptographer. Although I really like cryptographers, which is why uh, why I, I work with the International Financial Cryptography Association. But mm -hmm. like they're really awesome, and they spend a lot of time thinking about like what is the shape of this curve, and how, what does it mean for numbers to translate on this curve. And, like they're way smarter than me, and I think it's awesome. So our fundamental theory was don't mess with what we know works. So right. we use same signature encryption scheme that like basically everybody else uses and you know our hashing algorithm is a well-known and well-tested algorithm we use blake 2s and so it's just not we didn't mess around with any of that stuff it's not it's way above my pay grade to like try to deal with cryptographic hashing schemes but like yeah let me like tell you i spoke to charles hoskinson the guy who founded the Cardano blockchain. So he is a cryptographer. And I asked him the same question, like how, like how, like surely do you believe that your cryptography is going to be secure? And he laughed at my question. He was like, these questions were answered in the 1980s. You don't need to yeah. worry about it. <laughs> yeah. That's why you don't mess with them. Yeah. You don't <laughs> like, need to mess with them. <laughs> we figure that one. Math says math works. Yeah. We're out. <laughs> So um, this is one of, I, you know, we don't always agree, Charles Hodgkinson and, and me, but, mm -hmm. you know, I think one thing I can agree with him on is don't mess with good cryptography. Right. Yeah. Also, they, they also, at least for some period of time, were using Haskell as their, uh, the base for their blockchain, which made me like feel a little heart pulse of solidarity because we use it too. It's his favorite programming language, and like he is the founder of the company. It right? had to be Haskell. <laughs> yeah, it had to. We we get to do some cool things because of Haskell. Yeah. Because uh, specifically regarding Pact, the programming language, it Pact is written in Haskell, but you don't have mm -hmm. to know any Haskell to write Pact. It's like the way that Python is written in C, but you don't have to know any C to write Python. Like it's it's just the from where did you germinate your programming language? But it mm -hmm. means that when we were trying to make the formal verification system, it made it relatively easy to unpack the definitions of what of everything that you've defined, what does it mean? And, uh, and reduce that into something that could actually be parsed in, in math. Mm -hmm. Thumbs up for that. Got it. And I also like read somewhere that uh, Pat supports uh, entirely new business models and on-chain services like uh, what could be like some of these like new business models that can be supported by pact but not by some other languages like let's say solidity we have wiper if you have heard of it and then there's this new one which is built by the people at blockstack uh, they built this language called clarity mm -hmm. so we the thing about PACT that's really awesome is it is so expressive mm -hmm. while simultaneously being compact so that mm -hmm. you can do a lot of things with it, but 
it doesn't necessarily make things overly complicated. Like it doesn't let thing people do things that are stupid. And there's a, a certain amount of like where we were like, we've decided how you're going to use this programming language. And how you're going to use this programming language is specifically designed for how you want to use blockchain contracts. Mm -hmm. There's no like, hey, we actually took this like JavaScript thing and we decided to like shave some bits off of it and now you can use it to write smart contracts. Like, this language mm -hmm. is purpose built for smart contracts, which means it has a bunch of stuff built into it automatically that you would just assume exists if you were designing something for smart contracts. Like you can have native multi-sig and every time that you define something, it, rather than signing it with a key, you actually sign it with a key set. And mm -hmm. you can have a key set that's just one key, or you have mm -hmm. a key set that's three keys, or you have a key set that's choose two of five, or you mm -hmm. can have a key set that's my key works all the time, but Lisa's key only works on Saturdays. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like you can do basically whatever you want with your key set. And mm -hmm. so that kind of intimate nature of this has been wedded so deeply with smart contracts means mm -hmm. that you all of these security where you're like, I can't use a native Ethereum smart contract for multi-sig, but like somebody else built this thing that like kind of does what I want it to do, but you have to trust their code and hope it's not broken. Like, no, multi-sig just works. You don't have to worry about it. Mm -hmm. There's, there's, that's why Pact has this potential to do so many cool things. Like for example, we just, released a test application on mainnet that is the first ever gas station which is what we call when you as an app developer you can create an app and you can set a smart contract out there that has a pot of tokens in it that mm -hmm. when new users come to your application and they want to sign up and create an account that transaction where they're like hi, my name is Monica and I would like to make an account. And then it goes to the app, which sends it to the blockchain. It can draw the tokens from the smart contract that you have put out there to serve as a gas station. So that I, as a new user, don't have to buy tokens in order to sign up for your app. I don't have to have a wallet in order to sign up for an app. In fact, mm -hmm. you can do all of it for me and you can pay for it. So it's, it's finally having this web three type of experience where you're actually a, a, a using a blockchain application that has all of the usability features of a web two, just like, I wanna go over to Google and type in my blah, blah, blah. And like a centralized corporation takes care of the, the vetting of the whatever, and they run the server, so they pay for the gas. Like mm -hmm. I, as an app developer, can finally give my users an experience that they recognize, that's familiar to them, which is one of the biggest problems of getting people to use a blockchain application, is first you have to understand crypto, which is just like so impenetrable and scary. And people are like, I don't understand how cryptography works. Like I'm never gonna own a Bitcoin. You can just skim over all of that. And as a developer, you can just put a layer on top of it for the user that's like, it's cool, just sign up. We'll make your account, we'll make your wallet. We'll make sure that it's that the guard on your wallet is corresponds to your key and not to our key. Like, totally fine. And mm -hmm. so, we've we've really started building out these features to make it easy to draw people in and say, you know, the products that you can make here can be safe. The app that you can make here, you know that the network is going to have enough volume for you. You know the gas mm -hmm. fees are going to stay low. You know that when you write in this programming language, you're going to be able to formally verify your contracts. You're going to be able to check it. You're going to be able to integrate natively with a private blockchain if you need to also have transactions that are stored on a private blockchain. Because mm -hmm. our um, not only do we have an integration with Tendermint, 
so you can actually write things that are compatible with the Cosmos network. Right. We, um, we've just announced that we are doing a partnership with Polkadot, where you can also, mm-hmm. right now, we have a, a, a request for comment from the Polkadot and Kadena communities out there. Do they want us to run a full packed service parachain on Polkadot, mm-hmm. which will give you actually full access to the APIs as well as the packed core development? Or do you want something that's more like a packed core, but that could be deployed on any WASM type system anywhere? So mm-hmm. we're like, how do you want to be able to interact with Polkadot? Like, tell us now. And, um, or you could use our own private blockchain, which is called Kuro. So you can like, you have a one-stop development suite in our app, Chainweaver, where you're like, this is my wallet, this is my development toolkit, public blockchain, private blockchain, testnet blockchain, like just boop, 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 boop. So we're trying to give people an experience of something that they actually, not just like, I'm going to tinker around with blockchain, but like, I have an idea for a company that's going to exist on a blockchain. It's going to allow people to, I don't know, um, safely and securely rent apartments in cities they don't know by doing integrated background check and escrow so that you can hold somebody's money in an account where they can see and trust it and, you know, be able to have all of your interactions just inside this one application. Like, great. Mm -hmm. Sounds good. That's like Actually a one-stop make shop a business or... application. Yeah, that's yeah. the goal. Is we want we want people to feel like they this is the place where they can go to actually build the cool thing that they're dreaming of. So going back to it, you mentioned that as a developer, you can just create a pot of tokens to facilitate yeah. all the first interactions and transactions. Where yeah. is this token coming from? Is it minted out of thin air, or the developers have to put in money to be funded? No, they this? have to put in money and. That's like, you know, if you were running on AWS, you would put a bunch of like earmarking your budget, like, okay, I'm going to have to run servers in order for my people to blah, blah, blah. In this case, you just take that money and you're like, all right, I'm going to put in the smart contract and it's going to pay for gas fees for my new users that want to onboard. And Kadena also has a developer program where if you're coming in and you want to make a test application, like we'll set up one of those pots for you and give key it to your access so that you as a developer, like you'll only be able to burn tokens in a gas station. You won't be able to like trade them, but you can then use those tokens to go in and try and build stuff. And then it'll just automatically pay your gas fees for you. Like doop, doop, doop. Mm -hmm. Got it. Uh, let's take a step back and like, let's talk about a couple of, uh, terms that we hear in the realm of cryptocurrencies. Uh, what is the hardest word that you had to explain to your mom? Like for me, it was Byzantine fault tolerance. Like what's yours? So the embarrassing thing, or maybe not embarrassing, is that my mom is actually way cooler than I am. And like mm-hmm. way tech savvy, she's um, she's the head of innovation for this like mega huge law firm, and so she's always sending me like, did you see that Deloitte has just announced that blockchain is imperative to its strategy for 2021? Like, have you reached out to Deloitte recently to see? I'm like, mom, mom. <laughs> <laughs> she knows all about blockchain. She knows all about proof of work versus proof of stake. She has opinions on like all of these blockchain people. <laughs> So, um, I don't know, probably the hardest thing that I had to explain to my mom in the first place was, hey, mom, I'm going to leave this sweet data engineering gig that I have with this company that I love with my colleagues that I think are amazing that's making bank and is probably going to IPO soon. Instead, (laughs) I'm going to go make my own fake money and sell it to people (laughs) on the internet. (laughs) She was like, 
what? <laughs> oh my God. But turns out that people actually really want to be able to have a programmable money that they mm -hmm. know that they can manipulate in a trustworthy way. So I think that the money that we've made is actually, people are actually really into it. And, um, you know, we, we launched on Bittrex, which was our first real exchange listing in June, and it's gone very well. We're, we're very mm -hmm. excited. Congratulations. If, if, thanks. It, it feels like people are finally opening their eyes, really, that we've been here all along, that we've mm -hmm. been here, you know, through the before the bubble, through the bubble, through the winter, through the whatever the heck 2020 is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, right? and we've, you know, every single major engineering milestone, we set a date, we hit our date. We set a date, we hit it like mainnet, like consensus protocol is coming out on October 30th, 2019. Mm -hmm. We hit our date. Like mainnet is going to come out for executing transactions on the final date in in March. And you know what? We we set our date and we hit our date. <laughs> like everything we've ever said we were going to ship, we shipped. Everything that we ever said we were going to ship has worked. Mm -hmm. We've been here the whole time. So it finally feels like people are are paying attention to the fact that what we've made does what we've said it does. And and it's it's exciting. It's an exciting time. Congrats. That's that's a rare achievement because a lot of times you people don't really hit their their deadlines and their end goals, their target dates. I've I've heard so many rumors and so many horror stories of like, well, they decided to rewrite the whole thing in Rust. <laughs> and we scrapped <laughs> our entire work for the last eight months. Or like, well, they've decided that they're actually laying everybody off and moving the office to Singapore, wherever that actually means they are. Who knows? Like... And we're just like heads down, just doing the thing, just writing our thing. And now it's it's finally, it's finally really starting to pay off. We've got um, we integrated with Coinbase has this program called Rosetta, which mm -hmm. is basically they're trying to make a standardized API for how exchanges yeah. interact with projects. So one of our major goals for the beginning of the summer was nail the Rosetta integration, like really and provide them with feedback on their API on how to make it as tight as possible to serve our project so mm -hmm. that we are ready to roll when it comes to anybody that wants to integrate using Rosetta. And we have, you know, a bunch of exciting things coming out now. It's like people want to use our stuff. People want partnerships. They want to be able to connect the things that we've made to be able to use our smart contract language. We've got, you know, tokenization of some hard physical assets mm -hmm. coming do on our chain soon and you know people people are really responding to the, to the things that we built and it's 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 an exciting time it's a good time. awesome that sounds really really exciting and as as the an ecosystem continues to grow more transactions are being made and i would assume that you're going to have you you're going to need more miners on board so yeah. what will be your you mentioned your token distribution will be something similar to the proof of work will be something similar to bitcoin Will your proof of work and the allocation and distribution of tokens will be related to the number of transactions that's available or it's fixed at a specific parameters? Yeah, so the, the, the mine out for the 
for tokens on the network is fixed and it's been fixed since the the very beginning we we actually mine out on a 120 year schedule so miners are going to get paid for mining blocks for a very 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 long time <laughs> like may we all be around in 120 years to figure out what's going on with block rewards <laughs> um but until then the um for the next 10 years, the tokens are generated. Let me see. I have to do this backwards in the camera so it looks right. It, it goes up over time. If time is going that way. And then it starts to level off over time. So there are 200 million tokens that are available. I'm going to just like try to bump these off on the top of my head. 200 million tokens that are available at the end of year three. And... Um, there are 400 million tokens that are available at the end of year five. By available, I just mean like have either been mined or are out of lockup. Mm -hmm. And so in like, for example, at the end of year one, there are going to be like 65-ish million tokens and 30 million of those go to miners. And then over time, that's the proportion that goes to miners gets higher and higher and higher over time. It's 70% of the entire network is mined and 30% of the network was pre-mine. And most of those we are locked up for platform development over an actually extremely long time lock schedule. So the, the platform share is designed for long-term investment in the platform. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Got it. I think that's uh, a like very, very business model because one of the problems with Bitcoins is that Are you there, Lisa? Yeah, yeah Lisa. Sorry, my internet's a bit unstable. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I was saying that this is a really brilliant model because one of the, the flaws in Bitcoin, I would say, is that most of them are, it's, You'll be rewarding in block rewards and then it'd be transaction fees. But the problem is that once Bitcoin is seen as a store of value, then there'll be less transactions going that's right. on, on the network and less miners are incentivized to be wanting to mine. Yeah. So, so you're solving have... the problem by allowing not allowing the users to be incentivizing the miners, but the system. Yeah. So we still yeah, have but the system fees. incentivizes that. And transaction fees are, you know, you still pay miners in gas in order to execute your transactions. That's the reason that the token exists on the network. But we don't expect it to be the lion's share of mm -hmm. a miner's compensation. And because of that, that's one of the reasons that we can keep gas fees on the platform quite low so that people actually want to push transactions through. We're designed to be a computer, not to be the store value system. So for users buying these tokens off exchanges, why do you think they're buying the, the tokens for? Because it's not like a proof of stake mechanism where you can use the tokens and then be mining, be validating or to be approving of all these blocks. So why do you think people are purchasing these tokens? Well, they could be developers interested in trying to use their tokens to develop an application, or they could be people who believe in the future of Kadena as a project. Like, we think that this is going to be around. We think that people are going to use it. We think that, you know, because it's useful, people are going to think it has value. Got it. Let's take a step back and, like, try to take this off because it's been over an hour and, like, it is <laughs> oh, no. a very I weird time. I haven't even timing. noticed I've been having so much fun. <laughs> yeah. So, 
it's like evening for me, but it's like uh, I think 9 p.m. for Lisa and like 9 a.m. for you. So we'd be uh, tapering off with a couple of like not like very blockchain related questions. The first one of them would be that you are the co-founder of Universal Consensus, which is a pro-diversity in blockchain group. What are your thoughts around like diversity and like like Obviously, like all of us know that uh, technology is very non non diverse, right? How do you like make sure that you get things done correctly? Because because all of you guys over there are very brilliant, very smart. How do you smart people tell the the rest of us to fix this thing? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a complicated issue, right? It's something that isn't just a problem in our industry, but I think there are multiple factors that when combined make it particularly acute in our industry. Mm -hmm. One of them is that you have to be pretty risk averse to be interested in crypto. Like you have to be somebody who's like, yeah, this area is pretty basically totally unregulated. It has no protections and everything could be a scam. So you have to be somebody who's in a place in, of security in their life in terms of you know, economic potential and social potential. Like you have to have a safety net to fall back on. You have to be wealthy mm-hmm. enough to be like, all right, I'll just speculate with crypto for a few months. Like that kind of baseline is easier for the more affluent. And that demographic of more affluent and privileged tends to skew, at least in the United States, towards white and towards male when it comes to being risk averse like men tend to be you know for i don't know reasons testosterone who knows don't let's not speculate like in terms of gender that way i but, wouldn't like that yeah like, <laughs> <laughs> like men are more willing to gamble women are more like you know do we have a plan here like what is going on at least that's been my impression in, in life and maybe this is because society pressures women to have children and therefore you know you have to know that you can be a provider which means you're less likely to be like all right in my 30s i'm gonna just like totally skive off from my nice well-paying job that gives me benefits and instead like try to go start a crypto company so um if we can make the environment in the industry less hostile less risky and instead make it more like this is a viable career this is going to be something that's real businesses want to create things using blockchain because they don't think it's a scam. Like these are tools. That's one way that we can bring more people into the industry and more people means people that can afford to be less selective. Mm-hmm. So that's one. And then two is if we can build these societal structures that, you know, I got into this because I knew Will and Will and I knew each other from college. But if I didn't know Will, I never would have even touched a blockchain. Like that never, it wouldn't have happened. So how can we build these social networks that are more inclusive, that lift each other up, that give you an opportunity to connect somebody who knows somebody to something. And that's part of the whole idea behind universal consensus, which is recommending female speakers to conferences when they're like you know look at our panel of 87 white men three indian (laughs) dudes and token asian girl (laughs) sorry lisa (laughs) like there's no need for that 
There are plenty of really incredible, intelligent women out there and, you know, people of color out there and people of different genders out there. And we don't need to like recycle the same, same speakers every time. So, and then there are a number of other, like the She256 mentoring program out of Berkeley. Like they're wonderful. They're amazing. They have been pairing up young women who are in the college program with women who work at, or even men, mentors who work at various blockchain companies, teaching them, how do you get into blockchain? How do you graduate from college and decide that you're going to go work at a blockchain company? Like it shouldn't just be people who are risk averse, like dudes that know other dudes, like we can grow these networks. We can make this a bigger, mm -hmm. we can make it more accessible. So, I think are. culture also plays a huge role in that. Yeah, it really does. Like women are disincentivized from an early age to go into sciences and go into programming and go into mathematics. And we're just then st like, we, you have to select for all those things and then select for risk diversity in crypto. Like, all right, we're just making The stakes are higher, I guess. Yeah, and I would say that I guess in, in India, same similar to in Southeast Asia or in the, in the Chinese kind of culture growing up, Growing up, you, your parents will tell you, okay, just be an engineer, be a doctor, be a lawyer, because these are safe, stable, like, stable bowls, you know, stable rice bowls. And for, for someone of, of a culture growing up, this kind of culture to say, you know what, I don't want that. I want to do something completely different. I want to build my own bowl. In fact, I don't even want to eat rice in the bowl. I'm going to eat grass from a plate. And that's something very different. And I think there's a culture barrier to that. <laughs> I love your rice bowl. I love it. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely... I don't know whether this is like my mom, bless her. This isn't the first time I've just like tossed the salad bowl of my career and been like, whatever, like, let's do it again. And she, for all of her, like she started a company. She was a software entrepreneur. Like I am mm -hmm. a software entrepreneur daughter of a software entrepreneur mom. Like she was like, bowl, you want to use a bowl? Great. <laughs> like, I was expecting way less from you. <laughs> I got lucky. Funded. I got, I got mega lucky. I have Will, I have my mom, I have, you know, I went to a good school. I have, like, I'm extremely lucky and I want people who are not as lucky as me to have, to have the same chance that I did. Mm -hmm. Like the reason why I brought this up about diversity is that there is this common understanding that it's a very like, let's use the word cis white male dominated uh, community which transacts in uh, cryptocurrencies. Then we look at countries like Nigeria. I was looking at this graph where 32% of the people over there transact in cryptocurrencies like we do in fiat. How does that explain that? Because like these aren't like, I'm sorry for the lack of a better word, but these aren't very affluent people the way that you see of affluence maybe in the West or in the like Chinese region. So how do we explain that? Like, and how can we get this section of diversity become like one of the early adopters and maybe like help get Africa find its feet and uh, become like, let's say, join the rest of the world in technological advancement? That's a really interesting question. And I, I don't know if I've ever considered it from that perspective before, but you're right. Like people in Argentina 
use cryptocurrency all the time because their own right. currency is a little struggling. Yeah. And people in, like, we work with this company out of Mexico called Altium, and they are looking for multiple different kinds of options for managing value in a country that doesn't necessarily have sophisticated systems for monetizing different kinds of assets or different kind of land or and so we like i think that we could do a heck of a better job of rather than just allowing these populations to be consumers of mm -hmm. our applications cryptocurrencies processes but we could also get them to be producers of mm -hmm. you know there's no reason that like this company in Mexico is going to make their own company with a thing on top of our blockchain. And right. that's part of the purpose of Kadena of making PACT so user friendly so that you don't have to be an expert in, you know, formal verification or, you know, cryptographic caching, blah, 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 blah. Like you don't have to be an expert to use right. our system. And so you're right. We should increase our outreach. We should, we should do better about rather than just like trying to put our things out there, like proactively say, Hey, you should be using this because it will give you the tools to control your own destiny. Got it. Got it. Another That's thing that a, I want to add. Yeah. Sure. I just want to add a little bit on Nigeria. The thing about Nigeria is that it's very women, friend, women friendly. And a lot of the women, they actually hold, they are the household key to all the finances in the house. So that's why most of the transactions are probably probably made by women. And the government is also quite inclusive, uh, very inclusive in terms of all the different genders. So maybe that is one of the reasons why we see an, an uptake in women transacting in crypto, because the culture allows for that. Got it. So mm -hmm. I don't have the numbers on like uh, women in Nigeria transacting in cryptocurrencies, but I have like the statistics and like these could be like falsified or whatever is that people in Nigeria in general are using cryptocurrencies. Like if I have to transact with someone using cryptocurrencies, even with Bitcoin, like there is that hesitation, right? There's that, please God, let that be the right address. All of us go through that. And that is with Bitcoin, which is like the most like used cryptocurrency out there. With things like Ethereum, it becomes a flat no. Like, no, I don't even accept Ethereum. In Nigeria, I was working with someone who was like, okay, I will accept Ethereum because their own fiat currency is not worth much. So yeah. they are the ones like who are very open to using those top five or top 10 cryptocurrencies. And my takeaway was, it wasn't just people who were like, let's say the risk takers were like, okay, fine. This is this new financial product. Let me buy that. It's also people who are like, we don't have any other options left. How do I buy my stuff? We cannot go back to the barter system. So this is where like uh, countries like Argentina, Nigeria are starting to transact in cryptocurrencies. Yes. I think another thing is that one of the data that we are probably uh, missing out is that these, these transactions in developing nations are not by a general population. It's really by the top top 5% of the, the general of the population oh. in these developing nations. So they're not, they're not, they're not going to be inclusive of the entire eco economy or entire ecosystem, right. but it gives us a good snapshot of who are the kind of people that will be using cryptocurrencies in these developing nations.
Right. And a final thing is the speed fire round that we have. I'll be giving you a few names and whatever is the first name that comes up like in your head, like let us know. The first name is Vitalik Buterin. Actually really sweet. Yeah. Like just a just an actual genuine guy who's excited about technology. Right. He is very sweet. Yeah. Elizabeth Stark. Awesome. She's super cool. She's like she's one of the 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 women in crypto that I'm just like, yeah, you know what? Do your thing. Do your thing, girl. <laughs> and we are all like very proud of what she has achieved. So yes. Uh Charlie Lee. Maybe this is embarrassing. I don't know who that is. So he's the guy who founded Litecoin. When he heard about about uh, Bitcoin, everybody started off like, okay, I will go and mine Bitcoin. He was the guy who was like, I'll make my own Bitcoin. And he founded Litecoin. <laughs> All right, well, good for him. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it was like trading at, I guess, thousands of dollars during the 2017 or 18. I think like Lisa might have more more like insights to the number side of things, but it was trading at a lot. It's like an embarrassing oversight for me. I'm pretty poor with names, so like, all right. Yeah, think of it as some like, okay, I'll change the thing. Like, uh, let's replace that with somebody who founded Dogecoin. What would you like have a go? <laughs> yeah, I'm just like, you know what? Do your thing. Every innovation in the blockchain space is just more opportunity for somebody to make something cool for us to see what the world can do. Like, I'm mm -hmm. down. I'm down. Right. The last two are left now. Uh, Craig Wright. You know, he's an innovator. I'm going to go with innovator. Do your thing. Do, do, your, do your thing. Like, do your thing, man. Like, if that's what makes you excited, like, Go for it. Right. Last up is uh, an agglomeration of people that we have lovingly known to call the Bitcoin Twitter. <laughs> Do your thing. <laughs> Do your thing, guys. Gals. Other. <laughs> Do your thing. With that, we'll be signing off. Thank you, Monica. Thank you, Lisa, for joining us. And that's a wrap on the Hacker Noon podcast today. Thank you for listening to us, guys. And we would be seeing you soon. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, Monica.